0: It's not like I knew I was always a photographer, but it's more of the thing that once you do something and you invest time into it, that you get more committed to it, and then that leads you kind of deeper in.
1: I'm Jordan Weitzman, and you're listening to Magic Hour, my chance to talk with photographers and people involved in the medium. We learn about their backgrounds, thought processes, and ideas that have shaped their work. My guest today is photographer, writer, and teacher, Justine Kurland. This past fall, she released her latest photo book, Highway Kind, a virtuosic narrative comprised of 10 years of work that she made while crisscrossing America in a green van that she had retrofitted to include a bed, a bookcase, cupboards, and hardwood floors. The through line in the book are photographs of her son Casper, whom she took on the road with her as a young boy while they meandered through the American landscape in search of pictures. I visited her at her beautiful, small Lower East Side apartment in New York. Painted red floors, yellow Kodak print boxes and books lining the walls, bathtub in the kitchen, a small painting by her late father Bruce Kurland, and a little white kitten that she and Casper recently adopted filled the space with a great energy. We did this interview around dinner time, and she asked if it was okay if she could cook a steak for her son at the same time. I thought that sounded perfect considering Justine's work is so much about the balancing act between the demands of being an artist and the responsibilities of taking care of her kid. She describes those feelings so poignantly in a piece that she wrote called Now We Are Six, which appears in the book Highway Kind and was featured recently in The New Yorker. I'm just curious how you first got into photography, when you started taking pictures.
0: When I was 15, I moved to the city. I moved in with my aunt, um... And I had this best friend in high school. She didn't go to the same school as me, but I wanted to do everything that she did. Her name is Nikki Hartnett. Like, she introduced me to Andy Warhol. We would, like, get dressed up and go to nightclubs together. And she was a photographer. or I mean, she was 15, but she had a camera. Um, and so I got a camera then. It was, like, um, just to be like her. Yeah, no, and then I, I just, I always, I just got more and more into it after I started. It wasn't like some kind of like aha moment. Um, it's interesting. Like I, I, I'm on grad school admission. It's always like this kind of horrible story, like the story of origin, where people like write in their admissions applications where they were like story of like having a camera as a child and that the I, camera never left my hand, um, and it always makes me feel cringy when i read that (laughs) i guess it's only like in art that you have to uh say that you have this uncontrollable passion and obsession like you know plumbers don't have to say that yeah like i was born with a wrench in my hand and i could never let it go i had an obsession to change pipes (laughs) um and i kind of don't like to romanticize it more than that it's just like uh kind of was what i did
1: do you remember who the first photographer was who who really excited you
0: The Kodilka Gypsies was probably the first book of photographs that I was really, really excited about. Before I moved to New York, I I lived in this town. um, And uh, it was like 99% white town of poor factory workers that were even then, like, you know, I I was living there. Like, this is in the 70s. We're already getting laid off. Uh, So I don't know, it was like angry, poor white people who, um, if if you were just like slightly different than everyone else, you get really teased. And um, the way that I was teased was because my mom was like this hippie um, and had moved to the town because her parents lived there, but had been living in a city before that. Like she wore turbans and beaded earrings and um, she would have these like like fur coats from thrift stores and drove a van. Like she was really eccentric. And uh, to tease me, they, they used to corner me at school and sing that Stevie Nicks gypsy song to me. So I think that there is a way that um, I, I identified with the, you know, pejorative idea of like what what that what that was.
1: So what what did your mom do?
0: Um, she had a lot of different jobs, but. Um, she eventually, by the time I, I was, like, 11, when she started doing this, she sewed clothes and sold them at Renaissance fairs. She was a seamstress. And she traveled a lot. And I traveled with her a lot. So that was all part of it. So that kind of idea of, like, what that meant to have, like, a cottage industry and be traveling around was, like, I'm sure that when I saw that book, it, it felt like, like I understood it somehow. Or, like, it, maybe it meant more, like, looked more like uh, a fantasy of what my life was than... Um, I mean, I mean, I saw I saw this book when I was like fifteen. It's not like, or maybe I was like older. Maybe I was like seventeen or something. But it was like an early book.
1: So you went. You you studied. Uh, where did you do your undergrad?
0: SVA. 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 Um, when I got out of high school, so I was living with my aunt, which was really exciting. Like, I left this horrible town, this really, really horrible town where I was, um, you know, getting sung that Stevie Nicks song. Um, and uh, was really um, an outsider in in that town. And um, I, I kind of I was really nerdy. I read a lot and kept to myself. Um and I had this like dream of getting the hell out of that town. And my aunt had, had had five children, and they had all grown up and left the house, so she had all these bedrooms and um, offered to let me stay there. And I I moved to New York and and uh, started high school here. And it was this kind of incredible time where it was like all of a sudden I would found my tribe. Um, and I was really I was really into poetry. And I remember there was like a group of of us that would skip school and go to like uh, these Polish diners in the East village and read Allen Ginsberg together. Like, so it was like, I don't know. It's like there was like a click for nerds, you know, it wasn't like, um, it wasn't like being in the small town where it was like, you had to be like a jock or a burnout if you wanted to have friends. Um, So it was, that was really, really exciting. And it was in that time when I was talking about the, when I was talking about meeting Nikki and you know just getting really, you know, exp- expanding into all all sorts of ideas, of um, but I guess it was mostly like, write, writing and, and 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 art, not 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 just photography. I remember going to like gallery openings. Um, then this was like you know this is the eighties, this is the late eighties, and it was it was this kind of miraculous thing for me i didn't i didn't know that there were art galleries where there were openings and that people like came and um there was like they used to have like cheese and wine at openings it was super exciting to go into like find these places it was so uto- utopic to me and now even now that i'm like jaded and older and know like how political these openings are i still have like a little bit of like joy when i go in and that memory of like you know it's it's pretty it's pretty special that there's like a a world where like people uh, celebrate appreciate and give economic value to something that is kind of arguably useless
1: (laughs) right that must have been a pretty exciting time so you were into all different kinds of art what was it about photography in particular that drew you in how did you make that decision
0: um, I think it was really this girl crush that I, I was telling you about, this um, this this best friend. I mean, we used to write stories together. We used to have this kind of ex- exquisite corpse way of writing stories where I'd write part of a story and give it to her and she'd write the other part. So it wasn't just photography. But um, but then it was like, I don't know. I, I think it's more, it's not like this kind of like... Um, I found this great like I knew I was always a photographer but it's 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 more of the thing that once you do something and you invest time into it that you get more committed to it and then that leads you kind of deeper in it's like slowly deeper and deeper and deeper into it so that that becomes um but oh what I was going to say too is like after high school I didn't go right away to college I was um I was really excited to make my own money I, I grew up really poor and like the idea of having cash of my own was so good mm-hmm. so I was a waitress in the East Village and I was just um, you know hanging out with other waitresses and I would I would make photographs you know it's it's a night job so you have the daytime I'd make photographs I'd go to work I used to go to the 92nd Street Y to to print my pictures I had a friend who who worked there who'd let me go in for free um, and I, I think I was like in my I don't know. I was like 22 or 23 by the time I went to college, and I I just started to um, feel really stuck or like that. I wanted, I wanted, <laughs> troublemaker. I wanted something. I wanted something else. So then I, you know, then I went to school for photography. I started at SUNY Purchase, and then I transferred to SVA. Yeah. Um, and then by then it was like you know you meet these really amazing teachers, and you get really inspired, and um, you know. Uh,
1: You had some really impet, like yeah, like there, there were there were a couple teachers that really made a big difference.
0: Yeah, definitely. You know, when I was at SUNY Purchase, I had Gregory Crutzen was my teacher then, Hmm. Um, and he's really he's a great he's really a great teacher. He's like his parents are psychologists, and he has this ability to know what you're thinking before you knew. Like I had an eating disorder, and I. I was, like, making all of this these pictures about food and he was, like, started talking about my eating disorder and it was, like, this horrible, like, I didn't even know that I was, like, had that. You know what I mean? It was, like, those kind of revelatory moments. So he was really great like that. Then when I was in SVA, he was teaching there again and I had him again, but I also had um, this woman named Abby Robinson who is, she's not that well-known, but she makes self-portraits. She's, uh, uh, like, this hilarious um just like super sweet like really caring um you know we would have these conversations outside of class and the next time we met she'd like bring stacks of books for me to look at she was just like a really committed teacher um it's interesting because you know now I'm I'm teaching as well there's like it is kind of a bubble but there's something so beautiful about being in that conversation where you really want to know something and the teacher wants to talk about it and it's like it's like kind of that uh like things get like really exciting or something in that I like teaching it's it's I think it really feeds my practice
1: yeah how so
0: um to just keep me keep my wheel spinning so I know what I know to, to you know to know myself better and to kind of um, be open to other people's ideas. You know, it's just, like, the traffic, what comes in and what goes out.
1: So after SVA, you went to, you studied at, at Yale. That was, like, the the school to go to?
0: hmm I think less when I first got there than it was, like, directly after I got there. But um, Who
1: were your teachers there at the time?
0: Well, Todd Papa George ran the program. Um, Gregory Crudson was there, and Lois Connor was there. And those were the permanent faculty. And then rotating out was Philip Lorca de Corsia Nan Golden. um, Oh, Judith Joy Ross would come. She was super interesting.
1: So, was Yale a good experience?
0: Um, It was hard. It was hard to be there. I mean, it's it's interesting the way they teach there. Um, You're pretty much left alone, and then Whenever it's your turn for a critique, which might be like uh, twice a semester, um, you're expected to defend like a room full of photographs and they ride you really, really hard about it. And the critiques are run like a inquisition. You're asked a series of questions like, you know, what is your relationship to the documentary tradition? And how do you see yourself updating that tradition? And, you know, it goes on like that. It's it's um, it's pretty rough. And I think most everyone who went through the program had a kind of traumatic experience with it. There were these moments where Todd would you know, he's can wax poetic. He would say these kind of incredible, incredibly verbose, crazy things about photography like Like this photograph has a muscularity about it. It's like Perseus holding the head of Medusa. Like he's, (laughs) they're pretty amazing ways of talking about photography and comparing photography to poetry and like very erudite Um, and a really uh, you know uh, he would give these slide lectures. Um, He would have this slide lecture about Ajay that lasted hours and hours and hours. that was like you know life-changing i don't know i'm like remembering he'd be like who would have thunk such a modernist frame it's like he kicked the camera but it works the foreground shows the optics of the lens and like the nominal subject matter is repressed in the form of the picture you know they were like kind of an amazing way of understanding how photographs are put together so uh I I think I learned a lot from there, but I I had a really hard time while I was there. Um, I was not one of the loved students at all. (sighs) Well, when I first got there, I was actually making sculptures and that got beat out of me really, really quickly. I mean, this is not, this is like, I don't know when I was there and I graduated in 98. This is not when like things were interdisciplinary. Um, but I had applied with and got in for these boxes that I was making with two-way mirror that had, like, projections inside of them. I was really into, like, Jonathan Creary at the time. And, like, I don't know. Um, I was making these vision machines. I imagine them to be. It was, like, it's kind of hard to describe. I have none of them left over. But um, I was really, really uh, beat up for making that work. And I stopped making it. And then I, I got um, indoctrinated in my Ache lectures.
1: Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Your earliest work that I know of are pictures that you staged of women in idyllic settings. I wonder if you could talk a bit about that work.
0: Um. Well... The first group of photographs that you're talking about, these teenage girls, uh, stage narrative photographs compared to other people, practitioners of stage narrative were really low production. Like the photographs were all about how they fell apart. Um, so if you think about like, you know, Jeff Wall's like elaborate, like a year to make one photograph, um, or Gregory Crudson or, um. Um, I'm trying to think of who else was making stage photographs at that time? Um, i I would set up a scenario i would I would get teenage girls, um, but i i didn't I didn't direct them very much. They were so far away from the camera usually that they couldn't even hear me. i I, I used the camera to make a stage and then had them improvise, whatever the scenario that we were imagining. Um, so, I mean, there was a gradual loosening of my directorial hand, and I was really interested in how the how the photographs would unravel and and what um, what parts of accident would would enter into the photographs. Um, so it's like it was a slower trajectory. Um, I went from making the teenage girl photographs um, to a series I made of communes. Basically, when 9-11 happened was a real wake up call to me at the time where um, I felt like the photographs that I, I was making were all about a fantasy and the, the real world reality, the real, um, seemed uh, to intervene and I wanted to break the bubble that I was making in my photographs. So I, I was thinking a lot about what it meant to be American. And it's interesting because it's I have the same kind of feeling right now with this Trump administration, where um, when really horrible shit goes down, because it wasn't it wasn't nine eleven, it was the fact that we immediately went and started bombing in Afghanistan and Iraq. You know, we were we were sending missiles to like where possibly a cave was. I mean, it was so so ridiculous, and uh, I think that there was there was something about how disgusting I thought Bush's handling of that situation was that made me feel stronger about being an American or, or what I thought was good about America. Um, so I realized with the teenage girl pictures that I was basically staging communes. I was imagining not what a real teenage girl would do if she ran away, which would probably be like, you know, um, hanging out by yourself or with a few other people maybe but like being in a city spanging uh dumpster diving whatever that would really look like i I imagine these large groups of girls going into the woods um and living collectively and i think that that idea of america as a uh the possibility of of making new an idea of home or um or living by a set of ideas ideals harmoniously with other people of course that's you know the the myth of America it's like of course the the genocide of Native American you know whatever that actually looked like um I thought that the that the the the, the present-day communes in America more than anything were exhibiting what the the ideals of what America was supposed to be was about so I went. I started going around and photographing present day communes. I went to the farm um, N street co housing. Uh, uh, a, a, a lot of a lot dignity village. A lot of different places, and 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 made these group portraits when I went there. Um, and I didn't. I didn't want to make staged pictures at the communes. I um. I wanted them to be documents of of what was left of these ideals. But it's funny because then when I started doing it and I was doing it for a while, um, I started making staged pictures again. Um, I started making these this naked series where uh, it wasn't like I was going to nudist colonies. But I, um, I asked people to get naked and to kind of enact harmony with nature and, you know, a kind of hippie um, posture of what that meant to be back to the land. Then I eventually made the mama pictures after that. And that's when Casper was born. And in a way, those photographs were my least narrative at all because I was with my baby. They had their babies. You can't direct a baby. Like babies just do what babies do. So we would all get in the woods and the babies would go running off and putting dirt in their mouth. And the parents would scramble to keep them from harm's way, you know. And after that were the train pictures. And the train pictures came because um, Casper loved trains.
1: I want to ask you a question about the, the difference in those two modes of working. And, and the thing that I'm most curious about is I think you've mentioned that in the mode, what I mean by the mode is, is going out into the world and finding pictures rather than conceiving them in advance and then making them.
0: But the thing about it that's really interesting is that it's not like one way or another way. Like when I was making what I called my stage narrative pictures, I would preconceive the picture and then I'd go out in the world and what I actually ended up making was not what I preconceived.
1: It would become something else. Yeah, and
0: then when I went out in the world without a preconception, I totally had a preconception. I was like, I'm going to go find auto mechanics. I'm going to go to Louisiana. I'm going to, you know, so there's never, those ideas of like... um, like imposing my will on the world or, or like being open to the world are it's so fluid anyway that it's not it's like it's not as distinct although if you look at the pictures side by side they definitely have a different feeling to them but it's the way that they're made is is very is very similar
1: hmm. I guess the thing that I, well the question that I want to ask you and the thing that I'm curious about is you may I think you may have said that sometimes you respond to something, whether it be. Uh, visually, or just like s- something, just intuitively that you respond to, and you don't necessarily know why. And then its meaning is revealed to you when you look at the picture. It becomes it- something else.
0: Mm, mm. Um, I was reading this part. It's in a Zizek. I don't where he's talking about Donald Rumsfeld. Is talking about um, in a in like, why we should evade, um, Iraq and the the weapons of mass destruction, he's like, there's the, there's the known knowns, and then there are the known unknowns, but there are also the unknown unknowns, and that was a reason why we should go, because, like, the unknown unknown is, like, all of the weapons we don't even know that, you know, Saddam Hussein has, um, but what Zizhach talks about is that there's all of those, but, uh, if if Donald Rumsfeld was really a philosopher, what he would really come to is the fourth condition, which is the unknown known. It's what we don't know that we know, um, and that that always manifests in this kind of symbolic form. <laughs> but I just I, I just thought that was it's such a kind of interesting thing of like how you know when you're in front of a photograph, um, and sometimes what, when you're in front of a photograph and you take a picture, it's because like. You've seen that photograph before, and it's like you you. It's like uh, you know, it's it's not it's not because of something personal, or it's not because of some kind of magical, but just because you're like, yeah, that's a photograph. You know, it'll work as a photo. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but then there's sometimes those photographs that you're in front of because, like when I was talking about the mushrooms, mm-hmm. like the reason why I like that mushroom book has nothing to do with the photographs, but has something to do with my experience with mushrooms. Mm-hmm. Um, so then there's that, um, I don't know, there's a lot of different, there's a lot of different reasons. I feel like there's too much made of like, like the difference between like truth and untruth in photography. And it gets really tricky now, especially with all the kind of Trump post facts, post truth, um, uh, alternate reality. I it's, it's just, I mean, I think photography... Pho- all photographs do two things. All photographs tell the truth and all photographs lie. Um, and so this idea of, like, faking it is, like... We- it's weird for me to think about now because it's different.
1: So in your new book, Highway Kind, that was recently published, which is a fantastic book, by the way, you, you can you can see different motifs, you know, that are intertwined, that that seem very cohesive now. But I'm always curious... Uh, about the making of the work and how, and, and and I'm really interested in an artist's experience of figuring things out and not knowing and just being and, and kind of feeling your way.
0: Yeah, I mean, that book is edited together from three discrete bodies of work that um, transition one from the other. So there's a chronology, but um, as you go through the pictures, the point of view really shifts. It starts out with a more idenic. Kind of version of the American landscape and ends in a very gritty um, realism. But the first group of photographs were these train pictures that I made, and maybe this is where I should talk about bringing Casper on the road. Sure. Um, but then the second group of pictures were the post train pictures about looking at looking at people who are living out of cars and um, different types of travelers in more of a kind of uh, Hooverville kind of um, you know it was was right at the time when that recession hit that I was making that work and looking at at a more economic picture of of what America was and had been for the have-nots and then the third body of work are these pictures of cars and mechanics like really looking at the road trip as a thing in itself Um, uh, the way that the pictures are edited really revolve around casper as the central figure in the pictures that wasn't the intention of any of those bodies of work but he is the consistent uh he's what remains consistent throughout the three um and where there's a kind of like the, the, the three chapters of like looking at these trains to looking at um the trains involved people who were riding trains and you know these travelers to people who travel in the cars was kind of also because those train pictures were pictures of me and Casper um so a kind of more self-reflexive moment of looking at other people who are also living out of their cars and then the cars themselves so there's a kind of like a logical um progression that happens in, in that book but it wasn't um I think when I'm making work I kind of create parameters around what I'm interested in doing and then uh, I think I get bored inside of those parameters or I start looking outside of those parameters and then I eventually shift into a new body of work. So there's like this kind of transitional moment and then I'm kind of fully doing something different. How
1: do you, how do you create those parameters? Um, I mean, they're
0: self-imposed. I, I I guess that's a good question. I, I don't know. Um, yeah, I guess in a way it's more of that idea of like when we're talking about the staged or the unstaged, like I always kind of want to know what it is that I'm doing. I'm not just out in the world responding to anything. Like when I was talking about, you know, people who say they photograph anything, but actually only photograph very specific things. Like I'm aware that I have like a specific things that I'm drawn to, that I'm interested, that I'm exploring. It's not, it's not. uh, um, And I make pictures and I look at those pictures and and look at what questions those pictures are asking and try to go deeper into what those pictures are about. So with the train pictures, like let's start with the train pictures. Um, I had been making other kinds of pictures. I'd been making the mama pictures. And while we were on the road with my son, we would stop at train yards because he he loved trains. Um, And when we were on the train yards, I had a 35 millimeter camera. I'd make like little snapshots of him. I'd photograph him with my iPhone. Um, and we would just spend time as a kind of time away from the art that I was making there. And then I realized that the time away from what I was doing was actually what I was doing. Um, and so then I decided I wanted to photograph the trains and, um, and so I remembered like going and I like brought my four by five to the tracks and i remember casper being so mad at me he did not want me to photograph trains at all because this was our like time to just play together and not work he kicked my tripod and told me no photographing mama but yeah no but i did anyway because it was um it's it seemed like it was like where both of our focus was and and then once I started photographing trains, then I had to figure out like, okay, if you look up train on the internet, it is the most photographed thing in the world. And how do I distinguish my own sense of trainness from every other train picture in the world? Um, and I came to the trains because of Casper, because of his love for, for them. But then when I thought about it, I started to think about how much um, the train really was part of this um, exploration into the American West and this kind of mythology- That America has and I started thinking about um uh you know the 30s and hobos and and um you know the idea of uh the train as as this uh mode of travel for those on the lowest rung of the economic ladder would go from town to town um doing those jobs that you know was it was about developing the west like clearing the forests set building the towns and that necessarily as those things were built up their jobs would become obsolete and they'd have to go to the next town and the next town and the next town and so there's a kind of i don't know there's a kind of identification uh that like that the trains like literally and figuratively built the american west and now to look at them they're like this rusty artery that um takes goods from china brings them to walmart and then to landfills, you know, so there's um, this kind of like utopian dystopia, this promise and this failure all built up into the train. So that seemed like it made a lot of sense with what I was doing. But I started approaching it by looking for people who were riding trains, um, because I was I was subje- I was being subjective about it and thinking about myself as a traveler and putting myself into that equation, um, but it was super interesting because the people who ride trains like all of the different groups of people I had photographed before were really happy to have me photograph them. But train riders did not want me to photograph that. Mm. Um, it was like the first time I'd ever encountered that. I mean, I found people who let me photograph them, but it was really difficult. I was like the age of their parents. Um, I I wasn't a train rider and it was all about street cred in that in that community. And it's about self representation, you know. These are like these are people who are very like, um, you know, that their lifestyle is, is a kind of political gesture, but it's like a self ownership political gesture. And, you know, rightly so or it was really it was really difficult to gain access. So my view of uh, for the train riders was a very distanced view. They always remained a kind of fantasy to me. So unlike someone like Mike Brody who is in and among, I'm like on the outside of, of that community. And those photographs of the tra- of the trains were, the intersection of three different kind of image repertoires, three different ways of making pictures. They were the pictures of the trains in the landscape, which I think is like a kind of historical view um the pictures of the train riders that did let me photograph them which is my fantasy and then i also photographed me and casper in our campsites which was like the reality of being a mama on the road
1: i want to ask you um there's an essay in the book that you wrote at a time called now we, it's called now we are six and you really describe this process of being on the road with casper traveling and making these pictures and there's something about that writing that really struck me, something that reminded me of Larry Sultan's writing, and the thing that reminded me of it, the, the qualities that, that reminded me of it, was this, this sense of wisdom, and wisdom and doubt, or wisdom and vulnerability, together. Just the sense of yeah, of like wisdom, like this wisdom of being an artist, uh, knowing what you're doing, and and then also being. Being a mother, you know, wanting to make sure that your your kid is, you know, being taken care of and that he's okay.
0: You know, I'm not that familiar with Larry Sultan's writing, but that's a big compliment anyway, what you're describing. Um, yeah. the, um, the, the writer that I'm really influenced by is Moira Davey. I don't know if you've read any of her writing, but right about the time, I mean, when I was pregnant with Casper, someone gave me this anthology that she had put together called The Mother Reader, and it had a bunch of women artists who were writing about motherhood. Um, specifically, uh, one of the biggest voices in that book, besides Moira herself, who is an amazing writer, is this woman named Adrian Rich. I don't know if you know who she is. She's a poet and an art critic, um, and and wrote a lot about about having having children. Um, I mean, she wrote a whole book actually called "Of Women Born," which deconstructs the patriarchal premise of of what motherhood is. It talks about how it's like having golden handcuffs, where you know you can't you can't have a day off from your work or get like um, sick leave or it's like you're always out and you're supposed to have this kind of like self-sacrificing happy and she talks about how for feminists the whole question of reproduction was really problematic um, because they don't want women to be essentialized to biology like isn't there a way to talk about this as a kind of power Um, and if nothing else at least talk about it as a woman's experience, you know? Um, so I think, yeah, that was really inspirational for me.
1: So now that you put out this, this book, this past fall, what are you working on now?
0: I think making that book with aperture, it's like almost 10 years worth of work, maybe eight or nine, really. Um, was a kind of closure. I went, I went back to this town upstate that I was talking about. That was the first thing I did. And I started, I wanted to like face that thing that I was running away from. Um, I've been going there every summer working in this town. And the first time, the first summer I went there, I made like documentary pictures and I scrapped all of those. Then I went back again and I started to photograph things in a more oblique way focusing mostly on a Nestle's factory that's in ruins now it had closed 10 years ago it had been the economic heart of the town um, and it's been slowly getting salvaged for whatever like copper metal or whatever is uh, valuable but it's like this giant carcass just sitting there rotting away so I've been photographing that a lot um, and I've been making a lot of photographs of vaginas um, I'm actually like my biggest influence right now is Germaine Cruel, mm-hmm. um, and her kind of like going back and forth between those um, those erotic photographs of women and um, the factory pictures. There's something kind of I don't know that I'm drawn to in that.
1: Hmm. Have you been selecting your vaginas
0: very carefully?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot for having me here. And my pleasure. Uh, you're a most gracious host. Yeah. <laughs> And, um, yeah, really appreciate it. That was my conversation with Justine Kurland. This episode was produced by me, Jordan Weitzman, was edited by Sarah Anna McMahon-Sperber, and was mixed by Crystal Duhaime. Music on this episode by Poddington Bear, Michelle Macklem, Damien Lazarus, and The Monks. To find out more about this interview series visit us at magichourpodcast.org and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review on iTunes. It helps and we really appreciate it. I'm Jordan Weitzman, and thanks for tuning in.